Amen. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would humble us to receive your word. Lord, we pray that we would receive your word with humility. Lord, that we would look to you and to what you've done for us in Christ as we consider the truth of your word here this morning. We pray that we'd receive your word joyfully. Lord, what an opportunity to sit and listen to your holy word that you've preserved for us, that we have copies of in our own language that we can understand. And Lord, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'd work in us as we listen, Lord, to receive the truth with joy. And Lord, I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully and clearly that your son Jesus would be exalted, Lord, that we would grow in trusting him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, how do you handle adversity in life? If we're honest, we probably don't handle it as well as we'd like to. We may not have grown as much in handling it in a way as what we would desire. Maybe far too often we find ourselves in adversity growing anxious, maybe getting frustrated, which is a form of of anger. Perhaps we get discouraged and sad at the adversity that we're presently facing. Well, why is that? What's behind all of those experiences and feelings and emotions? You know, whatever adversity we, we face, we may think that something or someone is in the way of experiencing what we want to experience, of getting what we desire, of, of living the good life that we so desire to live. And sometimes that adversity may feel like a speed bump, something that kind of slows us down a little bit, but other times... It may feel like a roadblock, like we've come to a complete halt and aren't moving forward. Well, for those who've put their faith in Jesus, it's not that we're promised that we won't have adversity. It's not that we're promised that things are just simply going to start going our way if we'll just have more faith. What we're promised, rather, is that God is with us always through the presence of Christ with us, and therefore we can have a different perspective on Adversity. We can view adversity differently through the lens that God is good and that God is in control, which is what we've been looking at our entire time in the book of Genesis. That what we mean when we say God's sovereign is that He's good and that He is absolutely in control. When we have that lens, we can understand that all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Prosperity comes from God. Adversity comes from God. He's over everything sovereignly. And we view life through that lens, a lens of faith. Our perspective changes. One of my friends put it like this, that adversity is pavement, not a roadblock. Adversity is often the path, the very pavement that God gives us to walk towards His provision, to grow closer to Him. Well, that's what we've been seeing in the life of Joseph. In the book of Genesis today, we have our final sermon in the book of Genesis, four semesters. Uh, We've been studying and tracking through this book. And here we see that clarity is given again at the end of Joseph's life in Genesis chapter chapter 50, that the very path that God ordained and used to bring salvation to the people of Israel was the path of adversity that Joseph sovereignly traveled. Well, as we make our way through this last chapter in the book of Genesis, really the end of chapter 49 and then chapter 50, let's consider this main idea. If you're taking notes this morning, this main idea, God's promises 
and His providence give us hope to persevere. God's promises and His providence give us hope to persevere. Turn with me if you haven't done so already. Genesis chapter 49. We're going to pick back up in verse 29 of chapter 49. If you want to use that pew Bible right in front of you, you can take that pew Bible. Turn to page 43. In the pew Bible, page 43 will take you right to Genesis 49. We're going to pick up in verse 29 and make our way through the end of the book of Genesis. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you as a gift. You can take that Bible uh, home with you today as a gift, and then you could connect with someone here, a member around you, or our pastors will be at each door afterwards. We'd love to connect you with someone if you're interested to read more about God's Word and what He has to say there. A little bit of context here in the book of Genesis. Of course, Genesis is coming to a close. In our closing scenes today, at the end of chapter 49 through chapter 50, it's marked by death. Maybe not the high note that you would think kind of living happily ever after would finish. It's marked by death. We see the death of Jacob at the end of chapter 49 and at the very end of chapter 50, the death of Joseph. In this last section, we read of mourning, we read of grief and sadness and sorrow. Every loss of human life is an occasion for mourning, is an occasion for sadness and grieving. Yet we also see a chapter here filled with faith in God's promises and hope for the future. Sadness and hope side by side. Mourning and hope. Sorrow and believing God's promises going together. And I think that teaches us a little bit of what the Christian life looks like. We see in this chapter how those who put their faith in God and in His promises can approach life and death with hope. Well, as we make our way through this passage this morning, I want to point your attention to three considerations of God's promises and His providence. Three final considerations we'll see in our time in the book of Genesis. The first consideration there in chapter 49, verses 29 through 33. This first consideration, God's promises bring hope that perseveres. God's promises bring hope that perseveres. Jacob has one final command for his sons. It's that they bury him in the promised land. Though he had been in Egypt for 17 years, God bringing the family of Israel out of the land of Canaan to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph. He'd been there 17 years with Joseph, yet he still understood Egypt was not his home. We see in verses 29 through 30 that he wants to be buried back in the land of Canaan at this cave at Machpelah. That was a cave and a piece of land there that his grandfather Abraham had purchased. If you remember way back in Genesis chapter 23, Abraham purchased that piece of land in the promised land. He owned it. They carried on with the family. So Abraham and Sarah, they were buried there. Isaac and Rebekah, they were buried there. Jacob had buried his wife Leah there in that So that cave, that field it was contained in, they're a small piece of the promised land in Canaan, a possession of the family. Now God had made covenant promises to Abraham in the land of Canaan that his descendants would come to possess all of that land. That promise continued on to Isaac and it continued on to Jacob. 
Now this cave and this field and the promised land, they were a type of first fruits of the promise. The rest of the harvest was sure to come. Here's a down payment, a deposit, so to speak, on the rest of the land. And God would surely fulfill his promise. Consider what's on Jacob's mind as he's dying. That land. Egypt's not his home. Now, why would he care about where he's going to be buried? I mean, after all, like he's going to die. He's going to go be with the Lord. His faith was in God. Why would he care about where his physical body was going to be buried? Why is he so concerned that they would leave Egypt and go back to Canaan and bury him in this cave? This isn't merely a family tradition where he's like, well, this is what our family does. We're all buried here. This is where I need to be buried. I mean, this was going to be a difficult trip. And who knew if Pharaoh would even permit them to leave Egypt and go and do that? What we see here is Jacob's faith. He believes God and His promises. God promised that land. He believes it will come to His descendants. He will not personally see that, but he believes that God will show His faithfulness eventually to His family. One scholar that I read this week referred to this tomb in this cave as a monument to the faith of Abraham and his children in God's sure word of promise. With that final command given to the sons of Israel, we read in verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Even though Jacob knew that he would not live to personally receive that promised land, he died believing God's promise. He died in faith. He died in hope in anticipation that God would one day deliver what he had already promised. In other words, Jacob's faith remained until the end. You know, that's how it is for every single believer. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if by God's grace you've been brought to repent of your sin against God and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been saved, you've been made alive in Christ, filled with His Spirit. And the promise that you have is that your faith, it will endure to the end. You too will die believing God's promise. That doesn't mean that your life will be free from failure or fear. doesn't mean that we will not have flaws. As we've studied the life of Jacob and really all the patriarchs, we've seen their failures. Genesis is really honest. Moses, the narrator of Genesis, giving us a clear picture. They were fearful. They failed. There were flaws. Faith is not about the strength of the individual. Faith, rather, is about the strength of the object the individual clings to. The faith of the Christian is to Jesus Christ. There is no one stronger than him. No one died the death that he died. His death was no ordinary death. His death was a payment for sin, a once and for all sacrifice for sin. That was proven because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. It was a resurrection, a conquering of death and sin. And at the moment that you're converted, at the moment that by God's grace you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, His presence with you always, causing you to persevere. Peter mentioned this verse in his prayer, and I had it written down here on my sheet here for us to share. Assurance we find in God's Word for every 
single Christian. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul gave this assurance to Christians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our hope to persevere until the end is found in Jesus. There's a second consideration I want us to see in chapter 50 and verses 1 through 14. A second consideration, God's promises magnify His faithfulness. God's promises magnify His faithfulness. Now, in the first few verses of chapter 50, we see Joseph mourning the loss of his beloved father. Yet even in this moment of sadness, we see God's kindness. If you remember back in chapter 46, back in verse 4, God had promised Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. He promised Jacob, I'm going to take you to Egypt, and your son Joseph, your beloved son, his hand will close your eyes, meaning he'll be with you when you die. And God fulfills that promise here in verse 1 of chapter 50. Joseph weeps over his father. Look at verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Now, over half of chapter 50, it's taken up with content concerning Jacob's death being mourned and then the burial of Jacob. So mourning and burial, it's like half of chapter 50. Along with Joseph mourning, we see there at the end of verse 3 that the Egyptians, they wept as well. And not for a short period of time, for 70 days. This funeral procession back to the land of Canaan was so full of weeping that it caught the attention of the people in the land of Canaan. Now, brother and sister in Christ, death is something to be mourned. I mean, this past week we had the experience of welcoming new life into this congregation with babies that were born, uh, babies that were adopted uh, in the process right now by the Coxes. So excited. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And we had the occasion as a, a family, a church family, to weep as we buried one of our, our members, our sister Edie Caldwell, a, a week filled with rejoicing and with sadness. And isn't that the Christian experience? You see, sometimes people may think, well, we, we don't need to mourn. We shouldn't mourn. We have hope. But hope and mourning go side by side. We've seen in the book of Genesis where death came from. Death, did it exist in Genesis 1? No. All we saw was life. Genesis chapter 2, all we saw was life and God's goodness in creating. Genesis chapter 3, disobedience to God, sin against Him, rejecting His loving authority, breaking His commandments, and through one man came sin, and through sin came death, and life was forever changed. We weren't changed without hope, though, because in verse 15 of chapter 3, gave this promise, an anticipation that God would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible and the rest of our lives are spent hoping and anticipating one who would finally come to do away with sin and with death. 
until Jesus returns. He's already come to deal with death. He conquered death by dying on the cross and getting up from the dead so we can have hope. But until he returns a second time, until this second advent comes, we still remain in anticipation. And therefore, we know times of hope mixed with times of sorrow and sadness. Death is something to be mourned. It separates relationships. It separates husbands from wives. Parents from their children. It separates church family and friendships. We don't rejoice in death. And Christians, we can view death honestly. It is an enemy. Our hope is not in death. Our hope is in the one who died and who rose again in Jesus Christ. His victory over sin and death through his death burial and resurrection, that's what we find joy and that's what we find hope in. And therefore, we are empowered to mourn in a way that's entirely different from the rest of the world. We can mourn as those who have hope in Jesus, hope in the promises of God. Well, along with the mourning that we see in this chapter, there's also a great detail about the preparation for burial. And if you know anything about Egypt, you may even, like little kids, you may look around and remember the mummies, mummification in Egypt, right? They had this interesting way of embalming and preparing the dead for burial. Now, Joseph commanded the physicians there in Egypt to embalm his father. That was a long process, lasting 40 days. And it's likely that the 70 days of, of mourning we see mentioned there, that that included the 40 days of embalming. What's described here, I think why these numbers are given, what's described here, this is royal treatment. In my study this week, 72 days is what I read, was the typical period of mourning for a pharaoh in Egypt. 72 days. 70 days Jacob was mourned for. I mean, he was just short of the mourning process for a pharaoh. He was being mourned as a king. Now, why would Moses give so much space to mourning and burial. I mean, at the end of the chapter, we don't see this much space given to Joseph. We haven't seen this type of space given to the death of other patriarchs. Why so much detail and attention given to the death and burial of, of Jacob? I think the amount of space and the focus given here is because the, the attention that the narrator of Moses is drawing us to is God's faithfulness to his promise, specifically to the promised land to Abraham and his descendants. All this preparation of mourning is about them going back or going up to the promised land. Jacob is dead. God and his promises are alive, shining bright. Now with the emphasis on God's faithfulness to his promise, Moses records this trip out of Egypt to the promised land. Now before this trip can happen, they've got to get permission from, from Pharaoh. Who knows how he would respond? could be risky, could be offended or insulted by the idea that they didn't want to be buried or they didn't want to bury Jacob there in Egypt. So in verse 5, Joseph asks for permission. He pledges and swears that he will return back to Egypt after that happened. And Moses, I think, provides so many details here because something important is about to happen. Track with me. A trip out of Egypt. If you know your Bibles well, the major salvation event of the Old Testament is the Exodus out of Egypt. You can read about it in the next book of the Bible, the Exodus. I don't know when we'll go through that as a sermon series. I think it'll be next at some point. Uh, but, but spoiler alert, that book tells us about the Exodus, the major salvation event 
of the Old Testament prompted by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Passover Lamb, being freed from slavery and from the pagan idolatry that was there in Egypt, free to go and follow God as He would lead them to the promised land. Now notice that the Joseph asks in verse 4, let me please go up and bury my father. Pharaoh, he grants permission there in verse 6 saying, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Now this phrase, going up, it keeps getting repeated. We see it again in verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. It's repeated again in verse 9. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Again, look down at verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This phrase, going up from Egypt, is Exodus language. In other words, the family of Jacob going up from Egypt to the land of Canaan was a rehearsal of what was going to come in the book of Exodus. This was kind of like a mini rehearsal, helping them understand God promised he would bring you back. Here's a little glimpse and foretaste of that deliverance. Again, that fulfillment you can read about in the next book of the Bible. Now, notice in this rehearsal, Israel's not alone. Egypt's with them. And the next one, Egypt won't be with them. They'll be against them. It'll be a different Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. They will actually oppose the people of God. But in this one, the chariots and the horsemen, the military might, are actually with the people of Israel, aligning themselves with the people of, of God. The significance, I, I think, of this is that the Egyptians joining in with Israel in the Exodus is a picture of the nations marching with Israel to Zion. In the later books of the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets saw a day when the nations would come to the promised land, streaming from east and west to the promised land in Jerusalem. Jesus actually references this in the Gospel of Matthew, that when he returns, it'll be like nations streaming there to Zion. All of this is anticipation of God's plan and work and redemption. Joseph and the sons of Israel, they obeyed what their father commanded them. In verse 13, they carried Jacob's body into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave there at Machpelah. And just as Joseph had pledged to Pharaoh, we read in verse 14, he returns. Even in this sad funeral procession, there was hope abounding in God and His promises. This first trip, it was a short trip to Egypt to visit a small claim of land. There was more to come. There would be a trip that wouldn't be a short trip. It would be a deliverance, a a leading out. They wouldn't go to a small claim of land, but rather to all of the promised land in Canaan that God had promised them. The exodus was yet to come. Greater blessing was yet to come. Well, brother and sister in Christ, consider that with your life. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've already been saved. Meaning you've already been forgiven of your sin against God. You've already been filled with the Spirit of God in your life. Nothing can change that. Nothing can take away your salvation. God, the God who's faithful to save you, He'll be faithful to sustain you to persevere until the end. But you and I live in this kind of interesting intermediate time. We live in this time that's kind of after 
the cross and the empty tomb, but before the return of Jesus Christ. When I, when I do graveside burials, which I had the opportunity to do the, the other day with the Caldwell family, that's a moment of hope. It's a moment of sadness because if you think about it, that graveside ceremony, it's a moment, in just a few moments, they're going to lower that casket down into the ground. And I want it to be clear, abundantly clear to the family that when we bury a Christian, and, and burial, by the way, is something that is a practice of Christians, that when we do that, we're not discarding that body. We're not throwing that body away. God created that body. He created that body in His likeness and His image. And we're burying that body with hope. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul likens it to sowing into the ground. We're sowing that body into the ground, preparing for the final resurrection. We've already received the promise of God and Jesus Christ. We live after His atoning sacrifice for sin by dying on the cross, after the resurrection. We look back to the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we find hope, and we look forward to this second coming. We live in this time where we await the fulfillment of the promise. Yeah, it made me think a lot about what we saw here in Genesis. Why did Jacob want to be buried in the promised land? Because he knew that he was dying in hope. He didn't yet see that final fulfillment of the promise, but he died awaiting that hope. And it's the same with every Christian that dies before Jesus comes back. You die in hope. Christ indeed will be resurrected. To be absent from the physical body is to be immediately present with the Lord. We believe that Edie is immediately present with the Lord, worshiping Him right now in that eternal assembly in the sky that will never break up. But there's a greater day that is yet to come. And we can face death with hope, rejoicing the best is yet to come. As we read this morning in 1 Thessalonians, all those are already fallen asleep, meaning they've died. They're not asleep in the sense of where they're unconscious. They're aware of what's going on. They're worshiping God and Jesus this morning, the fullness of His presence. But one day, they will return with Jesus. All the dead that are buried will rise. All that are alive will stand to face God. It will be a wonderful day if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've rejected Christ, if you've not put your faith in Him, it will be a terrible day. You will face the God who, who, who will judge you for your sin against Him. And I hope this morning as you're here, and listen to this hope we're proclaiming as a church, our hope in Jesus Christ. I hope you would consider what it would look like to trust in Christ today for forgiveness for your sins. Again, talk to someone who brought you this morning. I'll be down here afterwards. Any of our pastors at the door, we'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to find hope in Jesus today by trusting in Him. A final consideration, a third consideration of God's promises and providence that we see in verse 15 through the end of the chapter there in 26. God's providence delivers His promises. God's providence delivers His promises. With Jacob dead and buried, it was a new chapter for the family of Israel. And this new era began with fear. Fear from the brothers. It had been 17 years since the family relocated to Egypt and re were reunited to live with Joseph. Yet the brothers are fearful that now that their father is dead, that Joseph may exact revenge on them, that maybe he was kind of holding off to not do this in front of dad, and now that dad's gone, he's going to come from them. Let's pick up in verse 15. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, we have no reason to believe that Jacob gave this command before he died. So we don't see this. And I I think Moses probably would have put this down if we needed to see that this was true. So the position I would have on this, it seems to me that the brothers are making this up, that they're afraid, that they're fearful, and they're kind of putting something out there to try to avoid any sort of retribution from their brother. But we read something here that we haven't heard from the brothers before. They're, They're asking Joseph, hey, forgive us for this. They're asking him for forgiveness. And this moment leads Joseph to weep. You see, forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. It means that when you sin against someone, that there's a debt you owe them. You've transgressed against them. Now, Joseph, he had canceled this debt from his brothers. The the reason he was able to cancel the debt that they owed him for selling him into slavery, uh, for basically leaving him for dead, the reason he was able to forgive his brothers is that he saw the providence of God, the invisible hand of God at work. His understanding of God's good providence empowered him to keep from showing revenge and rather to extend kindness and forgiveness to his brothers. He wasn't stuck in a horizontal view of what happened. He was living life vertically, submitting himself to God and to God's good providence. But what about you, Christian, when you're sinned against? When it comes to those sinning against you, are you focused primarily horizontally or vertically? You certainly need to deal horizontally with relationships, but first and foremost, to deal vertically with God. From the parable in Matthew 18, as those who put their faith in Jesus, we have every reason to forgive others. We've been forgiven a debt against God that we could not possibly have repaid on our own through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we've been forgiven by God and Jesus, if we've received patience and kindness and mercy from the Lord, how can we not then turn and extend that to those who sin against us? Well, look at Joseph's response to their fear there in verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God. Who does vengeance belong to? The Lord. He's saying, am I in the place of God? Am I the one to take vengeance? I'm not God. That doesn't belong to me. You see, when you have faith in God, you submit to Him. You trust His good judgment. You trust His wisdom and His plan. You you leave it all to Him. God is sovereign of everything. And over everyone, and God Himself will right all wrongs. Vengeance doesn't belong to us because even in the best pursuit of justice we may have, it can't compare to God's divine justice. You see, Joseph, he realizes he doesn't need to take any vengeance or to try to take the place of God. He can submit to God and forgive. In verse 20, 
explains why Joseph can forgive. Again, he sees God's hand in all of his life. God was sovereign over all of his prosperity, and God was also sovereign over all of his adversity. He had eyes to see the providence of of God, and here towards the end of Joseph's story, we find one of the most powerful and clear verses in all of the Bible about God's providence. Look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's story we've been tracking with for so long here, last couple months, it's a story of God's providence. Simply put, the summary from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, what is God's providence? It's that all things come not by chance, but by what? His fatherly hand. God's providence means God is good, God is in control. It means that that God used the evil intentions of the brothers, meaning that God governs and He sovereignly orchestrates all of human history. He's sovereign over not just some things, over everything. And at the same time, He never forces anyone to do evil. God is not the author of sin and evil. When human beings act in ways that are evil, you and I, we act according to our own sinful desires. I mean, we are totally responsible for our own evil. God, at the same time, ultimately in control, and He sovereignly orchestrates events. No evil can stop His plan. No sinful human beings can prevent or hinder His plan from being fulfilled. Here, He sovereignly orchestrates events concerning the brother's evil to keep Israel alive. You see, God saved His chosen people from Israel uh, it's chosen people in Israel from starving to death through the means of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. That was evil. It was wrong. Enslaved in Egypt. But God was not absent in any of those moments. What the brothers meant for evil, God was present, at work, reigning, ruling, absolutely in control, and working for good. You see, Joseph viewed the evil his brothers had done to him through the lens of God's providence. He believed that God's invisible hand was powerful and could not be stopped, and therefore he could respond to their evil, not only with forgiveness, but also with affection. Look at verse 21. He said, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Empowered to forgive, empowered to show kindness, Everything that may have seemed like a setback in Joseph's life was actually God using that as pavement to move forward his plans and his promises. And for those who've trusted in Jesus Christ, we can live our lives just like Joseph. What's true for Joseph is also true for you. Genesis 50-20 is often called the Romans 8-28 of the Old Testament. Romans 8-28 might be one of those verses that we are far too familiar with in the sense what I mean by that is that we we lose sight of the power of that promise maybe because it's printed on so many coffee mugs or we've heard it for so long if you've been in churches but brother and sister in Christ don't grow so familiar with certain parts of God's word with certain aspects of the gospel like Christmas the death of Jesus Christ the resurrection don't grow so so familiar that you're not affected and led to greater faith in Jesus what we hear in the New Testament the apostle Paul speaks to every question and says any setback it may seem like you're experiencing is actually being used by God 
for your good. If you love him, all things are working for your good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Looking to God and his providence, it changed everything in Joseph's life. It changed everything about his perspective of suffering. And Christian, as we look to God and his providence, it's an encouragement for us to move forward, to endure in faith and hope. Brother and sister in the Lord, do, do you have eyes to see the providence of God? Do you wait and watch? Understanding the providence of God doesn't mean you can make sense of everything. doesn't mean we can say, oh, now I know why this was such a hard time in my life. Okay, I can know exactly what God was thinking. We may think we know what God was doing. We probably, if we have anything figured out, it's probably just such a small sliver our faith is not in our cognitive ability to try to understand what God was doing. Our faith is in God. God, you're good. You're wise. You're in control. I believe your promises. All things work for my good. You've shown this ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ, that you're only going to do good to your people, and therefore I can trust you. I can look back on the past and not be bitter and not be resentful and not live in, in, in ways that are angry or anxious, and I can look to the future, and I can trust you and seek grace to trust you more. Well, Heidelberg Catechism, question 28, follows what we just looked at. What is the providence of God? All things come, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand, and you've heard this before. Question 28, why should we study this? Why should we study this? I heard from a pastor recently, and he was encouraging pastors. He said, don't wait to teach your congregation or your church members about suffering until you're in the hospital room with them, until you're in the room preparing for the funeral. Don't wait until that day to start equipping them to understand God's goodness in suffering. Don't wait to teach them about God's providence. He said, you'll talk, but it'll kind of be like those Charlie Brown films. They may hear, wah, 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 wah. It's just going to hit them differently. And what that means is the time to learn about God and His providence is today. Tomorrow will have enough trouble of its own. Until Christ returns, there will be sin and suffering and sorrow and death. But we're not without hope. The time to learn about the story of Joseph, it's today. Why should we study this? The Heidelberg Catechism says that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Brother and sister, may we grow in our faith that we could grow in thankfulness to God to look at the ways that he's prospered us today and to thank him for it and to give him credit for every good thing in our life and for everything that, that we struggle with and suffer. May we ask him for patience to endure it in ways that believe him and have hope. In these last few verses, we see that Joseph remained in Egypt he lived a blessed life. A lot of times what we think in Charlotte, it means to live a blessed life is to have a big house and a nice car. That's not what they thought about in the Old Testament. To live a blessed life was to have a large family and a long life. He lived a long life. He had a large family. To see your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, that was viewed back then as a favored life. And maybe we need to start viewing it more in that way today. In verses 22 to 23, Joseph lived 110 years and he saw his third generation. And his final words, just as it was with his father Jacob, he can't get his mind 
off this promised land. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from there. Like his father, he believed God and his promises. Egypt was not his home. He wanted his bones taken back to the promised land. So like his father Jacob, he had his sons swear that they would do that. But unlike his father Jacob, his remains would stay in Egypt for quite some time until God visited them. That word visited, it's referring to the Exodus. Until God himself came and led them out of Egypt, he would remain there as bones, remains would be there with them. And when all of God's people would leave Egypt, he would leave with them. See, his wishes for his remains to be a part of the moment when God delivered his people from Egypt. It was a moment of faith and hope. Joseph prepared the way for them out of Egypt. You know, a few weeks ago, we looked at Jacob's Hebrews 11 moment, that hall of faith moment in the life of Jacob. Well, here's Joseph's hall of faith moment. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 speaks of Joseph's life of faith, and it points to this moment in verse 25 here in Genesis 50. Let me read Hebrews eleven twenty-two. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This language of surely visit, he's making mention of the exodus of the Israelites. His faith is in God and his promises. It's evident in this moment. He's saying, God will surely visit you, meaning he will surely lead you out of Egypt and into the promised land. Joseph died believing that promise. Therefore, he died with hope. And with that ray of hope, the book of Genesis, it ends with death. Verse 26, so Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis 1, the book begins with creation, with life. Genesis 50, it ends with death. But Genesis, praise God, is not the end of the story. It's only the beginning. It's the first book of the Bible. It's only the beginning of what God is doing. A friend sent me this this week. It said this. He was quoting another pastor. It said, Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy, further in the Old Testament, it ends with Moses' death. Joshua, if you go down to Joshua, it ends with Joshua's death. But fast forward to the New Testament. The Gospels, do they end with death? No. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they don't end with death. They end with resurrection. They end with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. It changes everything about how you can view life. It changes everything about how you view prosperity how we endure through adversity. You see, the life of Joseph and the death of Joseph points us to Jesus. Again, many scholars point to the story of Joseph as foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. This theme of a leader of Israel suffering and bringing salvation is most clearly seen, not in Joseph, but in the one he pointed to, in, in Jesus, the one in whom there is life, death, and resurrection. As we look at Joseph's story, he went from humiliation to exaltation, that theme repeated throughout the pages of the Bible, ultimately being displayed in Jesus Christ, 
who humbled himself, who left the riches of heaven, who came down to earth to live the life that you and I couldn't live. He perfectly obeyed God in all that he did. And he died the death that you and I deserve, conquering death on that third day when he rose from the dead. Hope is found in him. Forgiveness is found in him. Life is found in him. And if you put your faith in him, you'll be saved, forgiven of your sins, brought near to the God you've sinned against, filled with the presence of Christ that will cause you to endure until the end. And the promise that you have, if you put your faith in Jesus, God is with us. God is for us. Christ is with us until the end of the age. Christian, just as the people of God in the Old Testament should not have given up hope as they faced death, we need to hold and cling to that hope. We live after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but before his return and his second coming. As surely as Jesus came and God visited the first time through Jesus Christ coming down to earth in the incarnation to Bethlehem, he will surely visit a second time. He came the first time as a lamb. He will return as a lion. And for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, that is the day of hope that we look forward to. Until Jesus returns, by God's grace, we must look to his promises. Until Jesus returns, by God's grace, let's ask him for help to look to his providence and trust that that's how he delivers his promises to us. And like Jacob and Joseph, we can face death. And if we do before his final deliverance, we can die believing the promises of God with a hope and expectation of life forevermore with God. I can't think of a better song to close our time out in the book of Genesis. It's been a long study. I can't think of a better song to sing than the one we've sung so many Sundays, closing our time singing, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him I leave it all. Brother and sister, let's draw near to the Lord and ask Him for grace to trust Him more. Let's bow and pray. Father, we ask You for that grace to continue to believe Your promises, Lord. We pray You turn the attention of our minds and the affection of our hearts away from the passing and fleeting promises of this world and help us to trust in You and Your Word. Lord, we pray for a greater hunger to know You, a greater appetite to be committed to being in your word, that we might know you and worship you more and serve you more. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. We pray you would grow our hope in you. We pray that we'd be encouraged by the truth of your word, that we would look to your promises and your providence, that all things come not by chance, but by your fatherly hand. Lord, we pray you'd grow us to be thankful in our prosperity. And Lord, supply us with the patience we need in the midst of our adversity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.